Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CXCast. Sam Stern joined, as always, by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have on the line, all the way from our San Francisco office, our colleague Kelly Price. Hi, Kelly. Hi. And Kelly, the big question we have for you today is how can firms do customer research in a good way, a quality set of customer research, but do it faster so it actually can inform decision making and isn't slowing them down too much. Uh, So that's what we'd like to talk to you about because you've been doing research on this recently. Yes, I have. So I've been working on kind of this body of research, which I'm calling modernize your research practices. And there's sort of two core parts to that. Um, The first part is as researchers and those, you know, executing on the research, how do you do that at a pace that supports the speed at which businesses need to be making decisions today while still maintaining quality of, um, of insights? And the second piece to that is, you know, if customer understanding is the foundation of good CX, which I think all of us at Forrester at least to believe that, and I certainly do. Um, how, as an organization, do you adapt your broader research practice to get that more integrated into the way that everybody is making decisions so that um, customer understanding can permeate um, what people are deciding to do and the decisions that they make, both at the tactical and strategic level? Um, so I have a report that's just about ready to come out that focuses on that first piece as, as someone executing on research, what strategies can you use to make your research both faster, um, but also more effective and, you know, maintaining that high quality that we need so that it doesn't just become a box to check. Um, it's something that's actually leading to better decision making. Yeah, that's great. And I think um, you're getting at one of the sort of, oh, I'm a reasonable person, but this is reasonable pushback, which is, yep, I know research helps. I know it's it'd be great if we had time to do all that customer research you're proposing, customer researcher. But hey, I'm a realistic person here and we need to move fast and we need mm-hmm. a decision now. So since your research is going to take too long, at least in my mind, we don't have time for it. So so help us and, and help our listeners there, Kelly, um, with some of the examples you found in your research about how I think you were saying there's new tools now where you can move much faster with collecting quality research. It's still good research, but done at a faster pace. Yeah. So part of this has to do with processes and part of it has to do with um, you know, new or new-ish uh, tools and technology that have been emerging in the space, I'd say, over the last five years or so to kind of support this challenge that organizations are having with research. So from a processes perspective, um, a lot of the challenges that organizations have comes from inefficiencies and the inability to kind of build a collective knowledge base of what are all the things that we're continuing to learn about customers. So one of the challenges that I hear organizations talk about all the time is that they run a study, they get the insights back, they might deliver that in a report, and then maybe it leads to, you know, a certain type of decision or, you know, informs a certain design. But then those insights end up in a file in someone's desk or, you know, on someone's individual computer and there's no way to reaccess and re-leverage the things that you learn from that to guide future studies. And if you're thinking about all the things that you've learned over, you know, the last two or three years and how much that could support the decisions that come up day to day so that 
you can actually determine more effectively what do we actually need to be you know actively doing research on versus what are the things that we already know a lot about. So this idea of creating a more effective research repository is getting a lot of traction amongst organizations, and there have been a variety of new tools. There's still kind of a select number right now that are um, emerging to help organizations make this um, transition. So one that a lot of firms are using is a version of Airtable, which is not designed specifically for research, but they have a template available that allows you to store your insights based in, um, they're kind of like nuggets, so to speak, uh, so that you can look up topic. Like if you're addressing a particular topic, you can look up searching through this repository of what do we already know about this and have that all come up like, you know, on demand. And that'll allow you to understand, like, is this something that, you know, I need to be addressing with an additional study or go out and talk to customers? Or do I really know enough to move forward confidently? Mm-hmm. Right. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you come up with a question. <laughs> right. right. Because you didn't store it right in the first place, even if you did the research um, or another part of the organization did the research, but you don't have any access to it. Yeah. We didn't know they do it. Yeah, exactly. And another thing that I think smart firms are also doing is they're creating um, kind of like a prioritization model or kind of thought process. It's not necessarily like a strict prioritization, but to determine, you know, when do you actually need to be doing research and why? Because in all honesty, every single question doesn't need research. And part of the problem of how, um, you know, amongst some organizations, uh, research gets a bad rap of being something that sort of slows down, isn't that effective, is that there isn't um, you know, judgment placed, effective judgment placed on, you know, when do we need to be dedicating or allocating our research attention to questions? And then, you know, research is done on something where, you know, maybe it wasn't needed that much and then it doesn't lead to that great of insights. And then that kind of just becomes this perpetuating uh, situation where those who are resistant to research don't see the value in it. So, uh, one company that I um, have talked to as part of this research is Blackboard, and they have a very small research team, and they're trying to think, how do we get the most effective outcomes uh, for the research that we are doing? So they've implemented this kind of ROI model or RI test where they think about, you know, first of all, do we have the time to do the research that we would need to do to get a good answer here? Do we also have the time to act on those findings? And then also, what's kind of the risk of if we weren't to investigate this? So like if they're talking about an individual feature, is this a feature that is really important within the overall workflow of our user? Is this something that a lot of people use? And they kind of create a balance of those things to determine, okay, should we be doing research here uh, at all? And if so, what does that need to look like? And that helps them ensure that when they are going to like allocate this dedicated attention, that it's going to lead to a real impact. So I was curious when you were saying that, um, initially I had a reaction of, oh, but user research is always helpful. <laughs> yeah. There's never something that doesn't need it. Um, but I guess, again, this is putting on that really practical hat of we have limited resources. Yeah. And so if we have the limited resources, where are we going to allocate that time? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting some of what you said. So what's the risk if we get it wrong, right? What is right. sort of the scope of this you know, change that we're going to make? Um, is there any example that you have, um, and I don't know if there will be, of something that does not maybe require a lot of user research, right? Where you would do this test and you would say, you know, we're, we're fine to proceed here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, it comes back to me, at least how I think about it. And this is kind of part of the way um, Blackboard is thinking about it is, again, like what's the risk of that decision? So, 
and a lot of organizations that don't have a strong research culture, they kind of live by this, um, you know, thought process of let's throw stuff out there and kind of see what sticks. And I would say as just a blanket rule, that's probably not the best approach, but it's appropriate in some places. So if you are working on something small and you're trying to figure out, you know, for instance, like how do we organize a menu on a website and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to design that, you're going to get just as good of results if you just run a few experiments and have it kind of live, maybe to a small group of users on your site, as opposed to maybe doing a bunch of upfront work. Mm -hmm. So there's still kind of that aspect of experimentation and learning what works best, but it's sort of, when is it okay to kind of put stuff out there and just test it with the people who are your active customers that are already using it versus when do you need to take that time upfront to feel like you're really informed about that. And the second piece to that is also going back to what do we already know about this? So how strong is the hypothesis? that you have about what you need to do. I mean, even when you're going in and doing research, right, you have some type of hypothesis about what it is that you think should should be happening here. So it's kind of what's the strength of that hypothesis? And that can also help you gauge, like, do we need to be collecting a lot more of this upfront information? Or is this something that we can move forward to kind of testing different um, variations of a design? Mm-hmm. Sounds like you prioritize your upfront research efforts and manpower, uh, where you're going to spend your time. You make sure you have a repository of the research that's already been done so that you don't waste time. Um, What are some of the other tricks and tools out Mm -hmm. there to help sort of lend some speed to quality research? Yeah. So from the researcher's perspective, and this is something, it's funny because I feel like when I talk to researchers about this, they feel like this is the most important thing and it maybe seems less interesting to non-researchers, but the biggest kind of barrier as a researcher doing work and trying to you know support all of these different studies within your organization has to do with kind of what I would call the administrative part of research, sort of those tactical things that you have to do, you know, in the course of a study that you're running that aren't the research in and of itself. So that has to do things like with, okay, we know who we want to talk to, but how are we going to find them? How are we going to schedule those people? How are we going to, you know, get our data organized in a way um, that makes it you know easy to mine through? And then kind of with qualitative research in particular, getting to a place where you kind of can get to insights more quickly as opposed to, you know, mining through, like coding every single thing. So some of these solutions um, that I've seen come out in the market, I feel like are more developed than others, but uh, this is a huge opportunity area for reducing that overall speed. So when we're thinking about recruitment alone, that can be something that tags on, you know, an extra month yeah. to the research mm-hmm. process. Um, so a lot of organizations are having great success with using new research recruitment platforms. So um, like Respondent, uh, another one called User Interviews that, um, the, you know, they use online targeting, but they can get very, very specific in terms of, um, you know, the compliance complexity of the type of individual that you're looking to to speak with. I think it's respondent that says, you know, we were able to find um, it was like salmon fishermen in like part of Norway or like some really, really niche, <laughs> niche type of um, of individual. And in addition to that, those uh, platforms find them, they help you pick the right people, like the best people out of kind of the pool of individuals that they find and then automate the scheduling process so that that can be all sort of streamlined and it just gets on your calendar and you know 
when, who you're going to talk to when, and it can cut down something that takes weeks to something that can take a couple of days. That really resonates with me, Kelly, because I think that upfront recruitment time, it doesn't even feel like time to do the research. It feels like mm-hmm. time before you've even started the research process, right? You're, you're just yeah. trying to find the people to talk to. Right. Um, so cutting down that time feels like it's even, it's shortening the time to when you're doing the research. At least the research is spinning off insights as you're talking to these people. That is not, the recruitment process isn't even um, right. any value during, right? Right. You know, for those organizations that, you know, they, they're not, they still really want to do research, but let's say that it was going to take too long to find the perfect people, then they turn to these solutions that aren't a good proxy for a real customer. So right. they talk to their colleagues across the hall or, you know, even doing like Craigslist recruitment, like sometimes that's okay, depending on your business, but you know, oftentimes it has nothing to do with the actual target persona that you're trying to create Mm -hmm. um, the experience for, which then again, you know, dilutes the quality of your insights and, um, you know, you're moving faster, but you're not getting the information that you need. Right. Which is that important trade-off of often if things get too lean, (laughs) they're really too lean to actually get the insights that you need. Um, So these tools clearly seem helpful. They would save a lot of time. They also automate some tasks that are maybe less fun in some instances <laughs> for the researchers. Um, but I'd imagine that they cost money to do these tools. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, everyone would already have them, perhaps. Um, so what is the, I guess, the, the trade-off between this this time savings and the money spent? Because before you'd have to argue for extra time to do the research, and now you have to argue for maybe a little more budget. Or maybe it's not that much more budget. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the research tools, they're not super expensive. It depends on, you know, kind of what category you're looking at. But with the recruitment tools, for instance, you don't have to sign up on some type of, you know, licensed relationship where you're paying an annual fee. It's really, you know, based on who you are recruiting um, mm-hmm. and, you know, how much time you need and kind of the complexity of that. And they kind of charge per per person who gets um, initiated into the study. So it's not necessarily something that you need to commit to over the long term. And again, you can kind of going back to thinking about um, what research is most important, what are the most important things that we need to learn. So if you are worried about it from a budget perspective, and let's say sometimes you do want to use Craigslist or, you know, talk to your colleague's husband or wife or, or whatever, if it's a lower stakes thing, like go ahead and allocate those, you know, you know, not perfect um, approaches in those cases. But, you know, you, you can allocate the budget to do these things just for the questions that are most important, which I think is great for being able to have that flexibility. I like that because then the investment too, you feel like it's so relevant that it feels like it's money well spent. Yeah. Yeah. And also obviously over time, if you're thinking about, um, you know, proving the value of research and making better decisions and the more that you can do, you know, that leads to long-term business outcomes, which can be more difficult to prove, but there's certainly, you know, a value to the, the time-saving um, aspects of it in and of itself. Yeah, so derailed us a little bit there. Um, you mentioned in passing that there were other tools um, uh-huh. that help automate findings. So the automating findings tools, this is an emerging space, and it's something that I think that all organizations should be kind of keeping an eye on. So um, there have been a variety of new tools that have emerged designed for design researchers explicitly, which there's been kind of a, a lack of solutions within that space of t- 
tools specifically for design researchers to um, analyze and socialize qualitative insights. So mm-hmm. uh, for you know most of history, it's like either people just literally putting post-its on a wall or if they wanted to use a piece of software to help with that, it was something designed for more of an academic um, application. Those And those academic tools are really expensive. The way that the licensing works isn't really complementary to like a collaborative team. You know, it's done by seat um, and they're just, they're not super usable for, for lack of a better uh, way to describe them. So there's some tools like Aurelius, Dovetail, um, or Framer that have come out to make that uh, qualitative analysis easier. Um, and as part of that, and also within some of the qualitative research kind of collection tools that have analysts analysis capabilities within them, they're all looking towards how can we use, um, you know, AI and natural language processing to help surface uh, some of the key findings and kind of direct people's analysis towards um, towards the things that might be most important. So what should they be looking out for? I don't think it's ever going to get to the place where it tells you, here are the four things that you need to be doing. But I think it cuts down on that upfront time of getting immersed in it enough where you have um, you know, that viewpoint where you know what, what you're trying to find and why. And so um, some of the tools are playing around with those things, but it hasn't really emerged as something, I guess that's, you know, fully baked quite yet. That's really interesting. So if I understand that correctly, um, part of what it's doing is it's doing sentiment analysis. It's identifying Mm -hmm. common keywords, perhaps creating word clouds for you, gives you a shortcut into some of the things to look for, right? What might be some problems, some good things, some bad things. And then the researcher today still has to do the deeper dive. Yeah. You know, AI takes over the whole process. (laughs) Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And those sort of like basic text analysis things, like those solutions exist. But like you were saying, it comes up at a very basic level. Like here's a word cloud of some words that came out, which I think can be helpful, but it's not that in and of itself isn't going to cut down on your analysis time too much. I think it's more, um, you know, thinking about how waiting for the technology to get to a place where it can actually understand, you know, the syntax and the meaning and kind of the nuance of, of the things that people are saying. And um, from what I've heard and from the uh, people that I've talked to that are both trying to develop this and use this, it's not quite there yet, but I certainly expect it, you know, to be there within the next you know, few years. Okay. So user researchers until you're replaced by AI in the next few years. Uh, there's some really useful uh, advice about tools, how to move faster, how to still do quality uh, research in this uh, report from Kelly. So Kelly, thank you for, for joining us and, and, and sharing that. And I, and I think you also were suggesting that there's more research to come in this area. So uh, we'll look uh, forward to that later this year and next year as well. Yeah, thank you. All right, listeners, we'll talk to you all on next week's CX Cast. Bye for now. If you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.